Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories. I have a blog you can check out if you'd like. The name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. And if you'd like to reach out to me, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email at rich at cagerredux.com. That's R-I-C-H at C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right. Today is June 13th, 2022. And today I'm going to talk about athletes as employees. I've talked a little bit about this in prior episodes. I did so in episode 98, where I asked the question of whether the NCAA was going to change its militant opposition to athletes as employees. And the answer then and the answer today is no. But I want to talk about athletes as employees in the context of the Fair Labor Standards Act. And that law is also known as the FLSA. And it is a federal law that regulates hourly wages and overtime. I'm going to talk a little bit more about it here in a minute and compare it to the National Labor Relations Act and how those are different. But this FLSA has been in the news recently because there is a lawsuit currently pending in the Federal Third Circuit Court of Appeals titled Johnson versus NCAA, which seeks to have athletes deemed employees under that act. And I've talked about Johnson in other episodes in the context of all the various pathways that are on the table now that could change the relationship between college athletes and the institutions. And uh, this pathway is really an interesting one that I want to explore a little more. But before I do that, I just want to reemphasize what's out there right now. And in my judgment, all of this lands with one central question. Are the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries and then the external regulatory decision makers, whether it's Congress, federal courts, state legislatures, state courts, or administrative agencies, going to recognize the true value of the big-time revenue-producing athletes to the overall marketplace of big-time college sports and their importance in the regulation of college sports? That is the ultimate question. That's what I've focused on in this podcast. And there has been a, a lot of activity out in these various pathways to change the relationship between athletes and institutions and the NCAA that, in my judgment, obscure that central question. And I think this FLSA pathway and this Johnson case is a good example of that. And I think that speaks in part to the disorganization of the athletes' rights movement and the lack of coordination and alignment of interest and an overall strategy of where this ought to land. And I think that that is due in part to the chaos in the regulatory market right now and then the potential consequences of the Austin decision, but also because within the quote-unquote athletes' rights movement, you have different strains of athletes' rights priorities, and they're not always in perfect alignment. And I've been saying this from the very beginning, 
of my writing and my podcasting, and that is that an organized lie is more powerful than a disorganized truth. And the NCAA, and now the Power Five, who have completed their hostile takeover of NCAA governance and the voluntary regulation of college sports, they are still operating as an organized whole, and their message has been coordinated. It's finely honed, and it's running through the best lobbyists that money can buy, the best lawyers that money can buy, the best public relations people that money can buy. And I think in that sense, it's really a mistake to underestimate the power of that organization. So we have this FLSA lawsuit in the Third Circuit. Then we have the National Labor Relations Act, which is a completely different federal law that has uh, different goals and provides different protections that have very little to do with what the FLSA does. And while these two pathways have gotten some attention, there has been virtually zero attention to the flip side of that debate. And that is where the NCAA and the Power Five in certain states are doing everything Thing in their power to get a declaration under federal or state law that these athletes cannot be employees for any purpose, whether it's under the NLRA, the FLSA, or state laws. And I have been saying for a long time now that one of the biggest unreported stories of the athletes' rights movement is what is contained in these Republican-sponsored NCAA Power 5-friendly bills that were presented in the Senate beginning in 2020. These bills are asking for a set of federal protections and immunities that would result in the biggest regulatory power grab in the history of American sports. And to this day, nobody's talking honestly about what the NCAA and Power 5 were asking for in 2019 and what they're asking for right now. One of the reasons I wanted to talk about this FLSA pathway is it is a perfect window into how the NCAA views its authority and the tactics that it will use to get its way. And they are very sophisticated and they are tactics that require tedious legwork to reverse engineer and tease out and then to explain. And that's what I'm going to try to do in this episode. So what I want to do is start by discussing in a general way what the FLSA does, or more importantly, what it doesn't do, and compare it to the National Labor Relations Act. Because in the discussion about athletes as employees under federal law, and those are the two pathways that are available, you have some conflation of the two laws and the standards that are applied and some of the purposes of the two laws. And they really serve different purposes. This FLSA, as I mentioned earlier, is designed exclusively to protect employees so that they can get a minimum wage, get the protections of the federal minimum wage law and then overtime law. Beyond that, it really doesn't provide a lot of benefit, and it stands in in contrast to the NLRA in that respect, because under the NLRA, if you can establish that you're an employee under the tests that have been applied under that law, and they're different, although both laws go to whether or not a person meets the definition of employee under either law. The test under each law is different, and there are multiple tests and multi-factored tests that I'm going to talk a little bit more about here in a second. But under the NLRA, if you can establish that you're an employee, that entitles you to collective bargaining. And that's what I've been talking about in the context of getting the athlete voice 
at the table and forcing the NCAA and more importantly now the Power Five to sit at a bargaining table and take the athlete's interest into account. And it also gives you federal protections that allow you remedies if the uh, employer isn't treating you fairly. And I think it's only through that pathway that you're going to see meaningful change in the relationship between the athletes at, at the highest levels in football and men's basketball, whose labors underwrite this entire enterprise, and the institutions who are benefiting from that labor but don't want to sit at a bargaining table with these athletes. And it's only under the NLRA that the revenue-producing athletes, the true revenue-producing athletes, have a pathway to have the economic value of their labor recognized and, and rewarded in some tangible way. So under the FLSA, if you meet the definition of employee under that law, you get a minimum wage, an hourly minimum wage. And, and then potentially over time. What you don't get is a seat at the table. You don't get collective bargaining, which means that you have no way to address your work conditions. So the FLSA isn't a work conditions law. It is simply a payment law. Under the NLRA, you would have the ability through collective bargaining to fundamentally change your work conditions and get on the table the issues that are most important to your well-being. And that would focus not just on the financial component and revenue sharing or having these athletes valued by their true market value, but also, importantly, the health and safety issues that have just been swept under the rug by the NCAA. They have no enforceable health and safety standards, and that is so important. And you can get that through collective bargaining under the NLRA. None of that is available under the FLSA. And when it comes to money, it's important to point out that the uh, FLSA only applies to hourly workers, and that typically includes lower-level type of work. It explicitly excludes executive compensation, for example, or salaried compensation. So in terms of looking at the labor pool, the FLSA is, is designed to protect hourly workers, and you wouldn't be able to negotiate on salary or revenue sharing under the FLSA. You can only do that under the NLRA. So in terms of talking about uh, compensating the high-value revenue-producing athletes in Power 5 football, men's basketball, the FLSA sets up a pretty low bar. And in these FLSA cases, the plaintiff class has been very broad-based and really hasn't emphasized the big-time Power 5 programs. It's geared more towards lower-level Division One and even some Ivy League schools and schools that really aren't in the big-time college sports sweepstakes. And it looks to me like the strategy of the plaintiff's lawyers, the athlete's lawyers in these FLSA cases, it is to cast as wide a net as possible and not draw meaningful distinctions between the high-level Power 5 type athletes and then lower-level Division 1 athletes. So I think the strategy is to create as large a plaintiff class as possible, but I think it obscures some of the equity issues and some of the civil rights issues. But I wanted to set up right now where this Johnson case is procedurally and what is really at stake in the Third Circuit. And I guess it's 
it's important to understand that this Johnson case, which was filed in 2019, is the third in a trilogy of cases that date back to late 2014, handled by the same lawyer. His name is Paul McDonald, and he is African-American. He works out of Philadelphia, and he has uh, really become a little more vocal now in talking about these cases publicly. And in this Third Circuit process, the first substantive brief was filed by the NCAA and the universities. I guess it was on May 31st, I think, just a couple weeks ago. And it got a little bit of coverage. And Michael McCann, the professor at the Franklin Pierce Law School in New Hampshire, who I've talked a bit about in this podcast, he writes for Sportico. And he and a colleague of his at Sportico wrote a couple of articles talking about that brief and some of the interesting positions that it takes. I'm going to talk a little bit about that too. Just last week, I think it was on June 10th, McCann did an interview with McDonald that was really interesting. And I listened to it. I was out of town. I was driving back. I listened to it. And I listened to it several times, actually, to make sure I fully understood what exactly Mr. McDonald was saying. And I I found that interview very helpful, not just in terms of understanding Mr. McDonald's and the plaintiff's legal strategy and how the NCAA was responding. But McDonald made some really important points in that interview. And one of them I'm going to really focus on in this episode is how the NCAA's power and its propaganda have facilitated some terrible ideas to come into the legal framework in analyzing the regulation of college sports and the authority of the NCAA. And what happened in this trilogy of cases that Mr. McDonald handled and is handling is a perfect example of that. So let me just talk quickly about the timeline of these three cases because they build on each other in different ways and that's important to understand where we sit right now with Johnson. But the first case is titled uh, Berger versus NCAA and it was filed in late 2014 and the timing of that is important because it came on the heels of the ruling in the Northwestern case. Again, that was under the other labor law, under the NLRA. But I think it was the impetus for this FLSA suit. And there was some momentum at that time towards athletes as employees because of the Northwestern case. So uh, in October of 2014, McDonald filed this burger case on behalf of two female track and field athletes at the University of Pennsylvania. And Penn is in the Ivy League. And the Ivy League does not award athletics scholarships. So these athletes are really not in the mold of revenue-producing athletes. But the claim is that they are indeed employees under the FLSA. And before I I talk about what the allegations were and, and what the FLSA says you have to do in order to prove that you are indeed an employee, I want to talk about where this lawsuit was filed and why that's so important. This lawsuit was filed in federal court, in federal district court in the Southern District of Indiana, which is located in Indianapolis. And that's important because it is literally the home court, pun intended, of the NCAA and has been since 1998 when the NCAA moved from Kansas to Indianapolis. And Indianapolis and the state of Indiana really wanted the NCAA to to come to Indiana and offered them some nice incentives. And Indiana has developed an identity as the amateurism state because of its association with the NCAA. And part of the deal was that the Final Four, the men's Final Four, would be played in Indianapolis every four or five 
years and it was viewed as a, a good fit and a good partnership and the climate and culture in indianapolis is very pro ncaa and it's also important to note that indiana along with illinois and wisconsin comprised the seventh federal judicial circuit so the seventh circuit court of appeals sits in uh, those states and covers those states and that is considered to be perhaps the most conservative uppercase and lowercase C federal circuits in the country. And it has been very NCAA friendly. The judicial opinions that have come out of the district courts in uh, Indiana and then out of the Seventh Circuit have really been NCAA right down the line. And the reason that the plaintiffs sued in Indianapolis, in the Southern District of Indiana, is that that is the proper place. It's called a venue. In order to file a federal lawsuit, you have to have both jurisdiction over the person and the subject matter, but then you also have to file in the proper location under federal rules of procedure. And when you're suing a, a corporation, venue, the place of the lawsuit is always appropriate where that company has its principal place of business. And the NCAA's principal place of business is Indianapolis. I'm not sure why the plaintiffs chose Indiana. They also sued the University of Pennsylvania. They could have sued there as well. In fact, the other two suits in this trilogy were filed in Pennsylvania, even though the NCAA was also a defendant. So they were suing both the NCAA and the University of Pennsylvania. And their theory against the NCAA was that that they were a joint employer with Penn and had legal responsibility under FLSA. And, and that's an important issue under both the FLSA, but perhaps more importantly, under the NLRA. To try to get to the NCAA or the conference, you have to make the argument that they are operating jointly with the institutions. And admittedly, the NCAA is one step removed from the institution, so that if there were a finding under either the FLSA or the NLRA, that athletes are employees. There's no question that that would be true as to their institutions, but that relationship is a little more tenuous when you try to tie it to the NCAA or a conference, for example, which is what the plaintiffs try to do both under the NLRA and also under the FLSA under a theory called the joint employer theory. And that has enormous importance, really, because under these federal laws, there's no question that private universities are covered under both the uh, NLRA and the FLSA, but public universities are covered mostly by state law. They're explicitly outside the scope of the NLRA, and they are effectively outside the scope of the FLSA because public universities can claim sovereign immunity and have no uh, liability under the FLSA. So in order to try to bring those public universities that are affiliated with the conference and with the NCAA into the scope of those laws, the uh, athletes and the plaintiff's lawyers are using this joint employer theory, and that's really important in order to, to get those public schools to be subject to these two federal laws. So in this burger case, this first case, you've got uh, two female track and field athletes at an Ivy League school, Penn, and you've got the NCAA as a defendant. Now, under the FLSA, even though it is supposed to have as broad a coverage as possible, the public policy of this law is to construe the definition of employee and employer as broadly as possible to try to give as many people out working in the workforce the protections of the minimum wage and overtime laws that the FLSA provides. And there are a lot of 
federal laws that are drafted that way with some very broad eligibility criteria and then a set of exceptions. And if you may arguably fit in the the broad category and you're not exempted by a specific exception, then in most cases, there are common law tests that are used to determine whether or not you meet the coverage criteria of a a federal law. And this is a a perfect example of that. So you have these broad eligibility criteria fostering a public policy that encourages the finding that laborers are employees and entitled to the benefits of the FLSA. And then you have a list of specific exclusions to, to really align with the public policy. But that leaves a lot of room in the middle. And You have under the FLSA, I don't know, maybe five or six multi-factor tests that are fact-specific, and this is so important. These are fact-specific tests to determine whether or not you meet the definition of employee under the FLSA. And uh, different federal circuits have different multi-factor tests and certain classes of putative employees have uh, a different test. So there are tests all over the place. I think in connection with these three cases, Berger, Livers, and Johnson, between the joint employer test, that's another test within the tests, so we've got maybe uh, seven or eight possible tests that you could choose from on the menu of tests. But what they all have in common is that they require specific factual determinations and they require a fact finding. They require discovery. And what has happened in the evolution of these cases, as we're going to discuss with this Berger case, the NCAA and the federal judges have crafted an argument that basically prevents the application of any test at all and essentially gives the NCAA absolute ironclad immunity from athletes being deemed employees under the FLSA as a matter of law without any factual inquiry, without a single deposition being taken, without a single document being uh, introduced or produced in, in discovery. It is an absolute no way these athletes can be deemed employees under the FLSA. And how they got there is really the story that I want to tell. And what it really says about the state of college sports, and perhaps more importantly, the state of civil rights in this country in the 21st century. So I guess I should say that after I listened to this interview that McDonald did with McCann, I went back to the electronic vault and I've spent the last few days looking at all of the pleadings in these three cases, the motions, the substantive motions, and then the substantive briefs, and also the opinions, both at the district court level and then at the circuit level. And there's some really interesting patterns. And I talked about this really back in 2019 when I was blogging before I started the podcast and I was looking at what was happening in these antitrust suits, there was a very predictable pattern and the NCAA used scorched earth litigation tactics. The lawyers that they hired are just given the green light on take no prisoners litigation tactics in almost every case challenging the NCAA's regulatory authority. The NCAA, almost immediately after the complaint is served, files a motion to dismiss on the grounds 
that it basically is absolutely immune from any legal scrutiny because it is the sacred guardian of amateurism. It has said time and time again in so many different contexts, not just athlete compensation cases, but these athlete as employee cases and any challenge to, uh, say, transfer rules or any other kind of eligibility rule, they have said we are untouchable because the U.S. Supreme Court in 1984 said so in this offhand language and federal courts bowed to that language. From a procedural standpoint, the consequence of that, the practical consequence of that deference to Board of Regents that occurred all over almost a 40-year period in the evolution of the law and the thinking about the NCAA's role as a regulator in college sports, you had the NCAA simply proclaiming its amateurism virtue as a threshold barrier to any scrutiny when you can just cut off any fact-finding at the very beginning of a lawsuit, then there's never going to be any meaningful challenge to your authority because there's not going to be any meaningful inquiry. And the NCAA operates in a fact-free world. And that gives the NCAA enormous influence at the propaganda level. And they have used that influence to reinforce the perception that they are the only entity that can competently govern college sports. And it wasn't until, and this is really, I think, the primary contribution of O'Bannon and Austin. It really wasn't until O'Bannon that a federal court said, wait a minute, you're not going to get that deference. We're going to permit full discovery. You're going to have to comply with subpoena requests and, and production uh, of document requests. You're going to have to put your people up for deposition. We're going to have a trial and your ideas are going to be challenged after a thorough and sifting discovery process where the, the plaintiffs get to peek in your cave. They get to shine a light in your cave. And that is the NCAA's worst nightmare because they know, they know in their heart of hearts, despite all the propaganda that I think they've convinced themselves is real, they know in their heart of hearts that this is all a house of cards. And as Walter Byers said in his 1995 biography, Unsportsmanlike Conduct, the principle of amateurism was nothing more than camouflage for monopoly practice. And I think the NCAA National Office Fat Cats and the conference commissioners and certainly the NCAA Power Finds lawyers knew that if the, the business model were subject to a thorough analysis in the litigation process, that it was going to become increasingly difficult to defend. So I want to talk about how the uh, Burger Court, the district court, put up this firewall to prevent any factual inquiry into the true nature of the relationship between the athletes and the universities. They just shut it down, despite all of these fact-intensive, multi-factor tests that were uh, designed specifically to make these determinations. The district court in this Berger case came up with a very creative and incredibly offensive theory for why these athletes weren't entitled to even have their case reviewed by a federal court. So let's start with how the plaintiffs and their attorneys theorized this case and the analogy they were using. The law is, is a game of analogies and trying to find uh, similarities and differences depending on what suits your needs. And so in, in pitching their case in their complaint, they analogized the situation of athletes 
to student interns, and there had been some FLSA litigation under the student intern classification. And as with many other classifications under the FLSA, there was a specific, I think this was a seven-part test that was used to determine whether or not a student was getting a true academic internship or whether what they were doing was more akin to employment work, which would have put it under the scope of the FLSA. So I'm just going to give you a, a couple of these criteria to help you understand how fact-intensive these types of multi-factor tests are. So on this student intern test, the first factor is the, the extent to which the intern and the employer clearly understand that there is no expectation of compensation. Any promise of compensation, express or implied, suggests that the intern is an employee and vice versa. Two, the extent to which the internship provides training that would be similar to that which would be given in an educational environment, including the clinical and other hands-on training provided by educational institutions. The extent to which the internship is tied to the intern's formal education program by integrated coursework or the receipt of academic credit and on and on and on. All of those are fact-specific determinations that can only be addressed and analyzed after substantial fact-finding and discovery. You simply can't declare as a matter of law by imperial edict that someone is either an employee or not an employee without applying those criteria. Yet that's precisely what the Brooker Court did. So almost immediately after the filing of the complaint, the NCAA and Penn both moved to dismiss the complaint, which is a common tactic that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. The NCAA has this formula in all these cases where they go right on the offensive, whether it's antitrust litigation or this FLSA or any other kind of litigation that challenges the NCAA's business model, uh, financial model, or regulatory authority. And they filed a motion to dismiss, and so did Penn. And the NCAA had two basic arguments. One, they weren't a joint employer with Penn, and that their relationship to uh, Penn was too tenuous. And then the second argument, and the one that, the, that Penn joined in on, was that these athletes simply weren't employees under the meaning of the FLSA. And it's interesting the way that they made their arguments. They This was a case of first impression under the FLSA. And so the NCAA and, and Penn were going through the statutory language and saying it didn't apply to athletes. And then they looked at cases in other contexts and other courts where athletes were not deemed to be employees for other purposes. And then they looked to some Department of Labor interpretations that they thought supported a finding that athletes can't be employees under the FLSA. But interestingly, in offering all those defenses, and they included the, the magic dicta from the Board of Regents and ample latitude and revered tradition and all that stuff, but they didn't have a magic bullet case. They didn't have a case that categorically took athletes outside the coverage of the FLSA or disqualified them in any way for employee status. So there, there wasn't a slam dunk legal theory or a slam dunk case that said as a matter of law, these athletes cannot for any purposes be deemed employees under the FLSA, which should make it more difficult to avoid applying these fact-based tests where you look at what the relationship actually is, not how the NCAA describes it or characterizes it or labels it. And that, and that takes us right back to the tactics it's, it's been using 
since the 1950s through the use of the label the student athlete. And of course, that was dispelled in the Northwestern case under the NLRA. So the court needs to rule on this motion to dismiss. And I just want to go through the district court opinion because it tells an interesting story. I, I, I guess I should just say, I haven't mentioned this in a while, but I'm an attorney and I spent about 15 years in an active litigation practice on matters not dissimilar from this type of civil matter. And a lot of times you can tell from the way that the judge or, or the court structures the opinion and the things that it prioritizes, how it really sees the case. And a single judge hears these cases in the first instance in the district court. And uh, the judge in this case is William Lawrence. And I would describe Lawrence as very much in the mold of other judges who sit in the Seventh Circuit, either at the district court level or on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. He, along with most of his colleagues were appointed by a Republican president, and the judicial philosophy of that circuit reflects strong deference to status quo interests and status quo power structures. And from the very beginning of this opinion, it sounds to me like Judge Lawrence didn't think very much of the plaintiff's claims and their case. He does a section called Preliminary Matters where he criticizes the plaintiff's theory of the case and how they chose to plead the case. It sent a message that the, the judge just didn't like this case. And then he talks about the, the joint employer issue and it's treated as a quote-unquote standing issue, whether you have a standing to sue a particular party. And NCAA was uh, deemed to be not a joint employer in part because the court believed that the amended complaint didn't allege the existence of a, a joint employer relationship. So that got tossed. Then the court gets into talking about the substantive claims under the FLSA against the University of Pennsylvania. And there's no question that the claims as to Penn, that there was standing there and that, that he needed to analyze those claims. And the court really goes beyond what the NCAA and the University of Pennsylvania were arguing in the briefs supporting their motion to dismiss and goes in and cuts pretty deep and says, in characterizing the plaintiff's claims, that basically the plaintiffs make a fairness argument accusing the defendants of taking the position that student athletes are less deserving of employee status and pay under the FLSA than work-study participants who work at food service counters or sell programs at athletic events or who wait tables or wash dishes in dormitories. And then uh, the judge says, but of course, the question is not whether the plaintiffs as student athletes are quote-unquote deserving of employee status, but rather whether Congress intended for the FLSA to apply to them. So that's a little condescending swipe at the plaintiffs. But that last sentence is important because the court acknowledges that the, the central focus should be whether Congress intended for the FLSA to apply to them. And of course, if Congress had intended for athletes not to be covered, they could have explicitly excluded them, but they did not, which then requires the application of a multi-factor test that is fact-intensive. And it's going to get real interesting interesting to see how Judge Lawrence creates the argument of what Congress must have intended when it came to athletes as employees under the FLSA. So the court then goes on to describe the basic 
legal principles that determine whether or not someone is an employee under the FLSA, the, the, the general ground rules. And so the court says the FLSA defines employee in a circular fashion as any individual employed by an employer. And this is just a, a basic recitation of kind of standard law that's developed in the Seventh Circuit under the FLSA. And the court could have cited any number of decisions to support that proposition, but it cites a case called Vance Kike versus Peters, a Seventh Circuit case from 1992. It seems innocuous. That citation seems innocuous for that very general principle. But let's hold on to that case and that thought. And then he talks about the definition of employ and then what the status of employee is. And that under the FLSA, there's a flexible totality of circumstances rather than technical labels. And courts are required to examine the quote unquote economic reality of the working relationship. And then he cites that Vance Kike case again for the seemingly broad, innocuous principle. But something that's really important about those standards and the very nature of those standards, the totality of the circumstances, the economic reality of the working relationship is that in the absence of specific statutory definitions that answer the question definitively, those broad standards invite the very multi-factor fact-based test that courts have developed to determine whether an employer-employee relationship exists. And then the court talks about some other legal principles that apply that actually reinforce the, that theme of really looking at all the circumstances of the work activity, that you don't look to any single isolated factor, but to all of the surrounding circumstances to determine the quote-unquote economic reality. And then the court goes to an, an, another section where he just says that this the intern analogy doesn't work and the work-study analogy doesn't work. But again, it, it's done in a factual vacuum because at this stage in the case, there hasn't been any discovery at all. No fact-finding, no way to apply facts to any of these multi-factor, fact-intensive inquiries. So the opinion wastes a couple of pages talking about that uh, test and how inappropriate it is and all that. Then it gets to the heart of the matter under a section titled The Proper Inquiry. And then, and then the court embarks on a legal analysis for the record books. So the court invokes this Vance Kike case again and uses it as the predicate for rejecting the plaintiff's claims. And in that case, in Vance Kike, it involved a claim by a prisoner, and it was a pro se case, so the prisoner wasn't represented by an attorney. And the prisoner was claiming that the labor that he was forced to, to do while in prison was employment within the meaning of the FLSA. And the judge in this Berger case, in using Vance Kike to, to reject the, the athlete's claim, said that the Seventh Circuit examined the economic reality of the situation at hand and determined that prisoners working within a prison as part of their sentence are simply not employees under the FLSA. The fact that a literal application of the four-factor test, there was a four-factor test, another multi-factor test to make that determination, to a different result was not relevant 
because those factors fail to capture the true nature of the relationship between a prisoner and prisoners who work in it. And then the judge says this, so too do the factors used in the trainee and private sector intern context fail to capture the nature of the relationship between the athletes as student athletes and Penn, the university. Then the court dives right in to the magic dicta from Board of Regents and says the Supreme Court has recognized that there exists in this country a, quote, revered tradition of amateurism in college sports, end quote, a fact that cannot reasonably be disputed. So that language wasn't dicta. That was uh, revealed truth. It was fact that cannot be reasonably disputed. And then the court goes on. That tradition, the revered tradition, is an essential part of the quote-unquote economic reality of the relationship between the athletes and Penn. So too is the fact that generations of Penn students have vied for the opportunity to be part of that revered tradition with no thought of any compensation. And then the court goes on with some more Norman Rockwell stuff. It is difficult to read, honestly. But it closes out with this. And this is really the most important part because the court goes from acknowledging that this is a very broad-based test, the totality of the circumstances, the economic reality, not the Norman Rockwell fantasy. But then lands with this, the economic reality of the situation, and then he talks about the Department of Labor's position that, that supports that athletes are, are not employees under the FLSA. But that, that position on the issue, both point to one conclusion. The fact that the athletes participate in an NCAA athletic team does not make them employees of Penn for FLSA purposes. Because the court has made this determination as a matter of law, as a matter of law, rather than on the basis of a deficiency in the facts pled by the plaintiffs, by the athletes, it would be futile to permit the athletes to amend their complaint to assert additional facts. Accordingly, the court will enter judgment in favor of Penn. That is just a breathtaking transition from these very broad totality of the circumstances, economic reality circumstances that have uh, spawned many multi-factor, fact-based, evidentiary-based tests to determine the very question that was presented in this case into the Board of Regents, Norman Rockwell, Chariots of Fire dicta that doesn't have the force of law and shouldn't have had the force of law, and then into an absolute principle of judicial immunity, excluding the possibility that athletes could be deemed employees under the FLSA as a matter of law. That phrase is so important. When you hear as a matter of law, it means gavel bang next case. No facts, no discovery, no inquiry, no analysis. You have no remedy. And that's precisely what the, the court did here in this Burger case. But the most offensive part of this decision is something that's not contained in it, and that is the facts, the true facts, and the reasoning of the court in this Vance Kike case, which was not a case involving athletes or anyone who had a legitimate claim to employee benefits under the FLSA. This related to prisoners. And in that Vance Kike case, the Seventh Circuit looked to a loophole to the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which abolished 
slavery, but created an exception for prisoners duly convicted of a crime, and they could be subjected to involuntary servitude. In its analysis in Vance Kike, which was not mentioned or referenced or insinuated by the way that the judge in, in Berger analyzed that case, the Vance Kike court said the relationship between the Department of Corrections and a prisoner is far different from a traditional employer-employee relationship because inmate labor belongs to the institution. The 13th Amendment excludes convicted criminals from the prohibition of involuntary servitude, so prisoners may be required to work. Further, there is no constitutional right to compensation for such work. Literal application of an employee test criteria in this context fails to capture the true nature of the relationship. The 13th Amendment's specific exclusion of prisoners' labor supports the idea that a prisoner performing required work for the prison is actually engaged in involuntary servitude, not employment. Prisoners are essentially taken out of the national economy upon incarceration. Because Van Skyke's allegations reveal that he worked in the prison and for the Department of Corrections pursuant to penological work assignments, the economic reality is that he was not an employee under the FLSA. So what the judge, the district court judge in Berger did was to take that analogy, that analysis, and then bring it into a relationship between an athlete and an institution of higher education, saying that these athletes, with respect to their entitlement to benefits under the FLSA, stand in the same shoes as a prisoner who is required to perform labor against his will, and that that is entirely permissible under the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution and a loophole that excludes duly convicted prisoners. That, that's just breathtaking. And obviously, the court knew the facts of Van Skyke because they went beyond just citing it pro forma for some, for some general proposition. They used it as the predicate, the fundamental predicate for creating this ironclad immunity for the NCAA and for the University of Pennsylvania to any claim under the FLSA. And honestly, you, you need that additional information from the Van Skyke case to understand the legal logic that the court tried to apply. Because the way it's written, without that context, without the discussion of the prisoner status and the 13th Amendment, you really can't understand how that circumstance could be entirely outside the scope of the FLSA as a matter of law. But we don't get that. All we get is this leap of logic down to this paragraph, which says, as a matter of law, the NCAA wins. The universities win. And I think it's also important to note that this issue was first invoked in the judge's opinion. The NCAA didn't cite Van Skyke in its motion to dismiss. It didn't make this argument. This originated, this argument originated with the district court judge and then was adopted by the Seventh Circuit on appeal. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that decision here in a second because it, it has a, an important caveat. And then that odious reasoning and the use of that Van Skyke case was laundered through the second case in the trilogy and then into Johnson in the, the trilogy. And on the back side, in the briefing in Johnson in the Third Circuit, there's not even a citation to Van Skyke. Van Skyke doesn't exist. The case that created this judicial immunity for the NCAA and the institutions 
no longer exists in the discussion of the case. Uh, I guess I'm going to talk in the next episode. I've gone a little bit long here, so I think I'm going to roll this over to a second episode to talk about the Johnson case and what all this means today and in light of the Austin decision and the evolution in this trilogy of cases. But what you see now is that Berger stands for the proposition that athletes cannot, as a matter of law, be deemed employees under the FLSA. And there's no discussion about why that's the case. There's no discussion about the origin of that principle. And there's no discussion about the very case and the context in which that case arose that gave life to that judicial immunity. That's the way the NCAA operates. This is just the textbook example. The same thing has happened in the antitrust cases. When you go back and look at the antitrust cases challenging the NCAA's compensation limits, you go back to White and then you look at O'Bannon. The NCAA stated outright, openly, in public documents, in pleadings, in briefs, that they were entitled to absolute immunity from antitrust laws because they were not engaged in commercial activity and that the antitrust laws didn't even apply to them. That's what they argued to the Ninth Circuit. That's what they argued to the U.S. Supreme Court. The, the, the Supreme Court didn't take the case, but that, they said that explicitly. There's no, There was no ambiguity there. It was only after O'Bannon and transitioning into Austin and into the briefing in the United States Supreme Court in 2020 and 2021, where the NCAA tried to cleverly disguise its request for outright antitrust immunity. And in the process, they misled the United States Senate and the United States Supreme Court. They did not shoot straight about what they were asking for there. And to this day, they refuse to acknowledge that the very reason they appealed this case, the Austin case, to the United States Supreme Court was to get a judicially created antitrust immunity. And they wrapped up that uh, stealth campaign in a sophisticated package that made it look as if they were asking for something else. The same thing that's happened in this Berger case with the use of Van Skyke. And then in their congressional campaign, beginning in 2019, when you look at the evolution of the Republican-sponsored NCAA-friendly bills that are designed to end the athletes' rights movement, and you look at the Marco Rubio bill from June of 2020, which was the first bill that came out, it's comical almost. The bill's only a couple pages long, and it is all about giving the NCAA these absolute protections and immunities, antitrust immunity, federal preemption of state laws, and athletes can't be employees. And that bill was so bad that even Republicans didn't support it. It was such a naked power play that the Republicans didn't even support it. Then as the debate evolved, and then as circumstances changed, and then you had the flip in in the Senate, and then into 2021, you saw the NCAA doing in Congress precisely what it did with antitrust immunity in O'Bannon and Austin and what it did with this immunity under the FLSA through Berger and into Johnson. And that is they cleverly disguised their motives and their intentions. So from that Rubio bill to the Jerry Moran bill in February of 2021, you have two fundamentally different approaches. And the Moran bill is, I don't know, it's 
30, 40 pages. The Rubio bill was three pages. The Moran bill throws in a bunch of shiny objects that have virtually no value, but buried in the details are the same protections and immunities that were in the Rubio bill. And on the backside of the Moran bill, the athletes' rights movement is just as dead as it would have been under the Rubio bill. That's the way the NCAA operates. It is fundamentally dishonest. So what I want to do for the rest of this episode, I just want to go through the Seventh Circuit opinion in Berger. And there was a concurrent opinion that's important. And that set the stage for the second case in the trilogy, this Livers case, which was filed in 2017, and then gives some context into Johnson, which was filed in 2019. So you got to give McDonald some credit for persistence. He stuck with it and he kept coming back. And that's what you have to do when you're dealing with an adversary like the NCAA and these powerful institutions that are members of the NCAA. This is just a, a, a ruthless litigation, the scorched earth litigation tactics that these institutions employ. There, there are no rules. There's simply no rules. And even though the NCAA didn't invoke that offensive Van Sky case and the 13th Amendment and the slave labor analogy, they picked up on that immediately in the appeal to the Seventh Circuit in Berger. They argued it in Livers. And then in Johnson, when the environment was a little less favorable to those arguments, all of a sudden they bury them and all of a sudden Van Skyke disappears. That's the NCAA, ladies and gentlemen. So let me talk a little bit about this Seventh Circuit opinion. So the Berger case was appealed by the plaintiffs. And as I've mentioned in prior episodes, in federal circuit courts, panels of three judges hear the appeals in the first instance, and they have to review the case. It's not a discretionary appeal process. They, they have to take a look at it. And I found the Seventh Circuit's decision really interesting in a couple regards. First of all, for a case that should invoke a very fact-intensive, complex analysis. This is a very short opinion. The internet version I printed off is, is 13 pages. And in a case like this, under a complicated federal statute like this, and the, the tests that you have to analyze in most cases, this is the kind of a case where you would expect to see a 50, 60, 70, 80-page opinion. Here, you, it's 13. And the reason it's so short is because the district court judge invented out of whole cloth an absolute judicial immunity for the NCAA and the institutions. So you had these three judges, and, and the author of the opinion was a guy named Kahn, Judge Kahn. He was appointed by Reagan, and he is old school, I think. And then you also on the panel had a woman named Sykes. I, I don't remember her first name. She's He's actually the chief judge of, of the Seventh Circuit, I think, also a Republican Bush II appointee. And again, that those two judges are in the profile, the kind of the common profile of the Seventh Circuit. And I'm not suggesting any overt bias here. I'm just saying that this is the, the demographic. The demographic is the demographic when it comes to a party affiliation. Judges are human and circuits have certain climates and cultures, and they are influenced by the ideology of the judges who comprise it. This, that's not rocket science. And then the third judge, Hamilton, and he was appointed by Clinton. And the Seventh Circuit affirmed the district court's ruling. 
and it was unanimous. But uh, Hamilton, the, the Democrat appointee, he offered a concurring opinion, which I think is worth paying attention to. But they go through the basic analysis. It's a, it is very cursory, and they knock out the joint employer issue. I, I don't think they buy into some of the condescension that the district court leveled at the, at the plaintiffs and, and the attorneys. They just parrot the, the basic analysis. They do cite to Vance Kike, and they talk about the import of Van Skyke. But, but interestingly, when they are talking about how Van Skyke is relevant in creating this essentially immunity shield under the FLSA, there's no discussion, like, like there was no discussion in the district court analysis of the facts of, of Van Skyke and the invocation of the 13th Amendment and the relevance of the prisoner exclusion. That prisoner exclusion came up legally in Van Skyke in the context of an exception to the 13th Amendment. No discussion about that. And then they go right into the Board of Regents dicta and the revered tradition and the student-athlete experience and all of the propaganda. But there's no real discussion of how athletes are like prisoners. So they use that case and then they just jump over the fact that it's being applied to athletes. And then the court does something interesting. They talk about other contexts in which athletes have been deemed to be students and not employees. And they cite to the two cases in the workers' compensation context, and that's the, the Nemeth case and the Van Horn case, one out of Colorado, one out of California. Those were the cases, particularly that Nemeth case in Colorado in 1953, which really concerned the NCAA because they thought they were going to be on the hook for workers' compensation liability. And it's in response to those cases that Walter Byers purposely crafted, fraudulently crafted, the term from the student-athlete to avoid workers' compensation liability, and he said that explicitly. The man who invented it said that explicitly in his own book in 1995. And in the court, uh, talks about this Department of Labor guidance, this opinion that they issued that has been used to suggest that athletes cannot be employees. But let's talk a little bit about Hamilton's concurring opinion. And he says, I joined, I joined Judge Kahn's opinion for the court, but wish to add a note of caution. He says the, the plaintiffs in this case were students who participated in track and field at the University of Pennsylvania. And he says, like any other Ivy League schools, Penn does not offer athletic scholarships. And also, as far as I know, track and field is not a quote-unquote revenue sport at Penn or any other school. In this case, therefore, the economic reality and the sometimes frayed tradition of amateurism both point towards dismissal of these plaintiffs' claims. And then he says, because the plaintiffs in this case did not receive athletic scholarships and participated in a non-revenue sport, they pursued a broad theory. The logic of their claim would have included not only any college athlete in any sport in any NCAA division, but also college musicians, actors, journalists, and debaters. The broad theory is mistaken, as Judge Kane's opinion explains. I am less confident, however, that our reasoning should extend to students who receive athletic scholarships to participate 
participate in so-called revenue sports like Division I men's basketball and FBS football. In those sports, economic reality and the tradition of amateurism may not point in the same direction. Those sports involve billions of dollars of revenue for colleges and universities. Athletic scholarships are limited to the cost of attending school. With economic reality as our guide, as I believe it should be, there may be room for further debate, perhaps with a developed factual record rather than bare pleadings for cases addressing employment status for a variety of purposes. And that is a very soft touch and a soft way of saying we are missing perhaps the big picture here and we uh, are not looking at economic reality when it comes to the true interests in the overall big-time college sports marketplace. We're looking at an outlier, really, to the big-time college sports business model. And I think that really points to some of the flaws, as I see them, in the way that this trilogy of cases has been litigated, because I think it tends to obscure some of the civil rights issues, because we are moving away from looking at the interests of the laborers in big-time football, men's basketball, whose talents underwrite this entire business model. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in the next episode when I talk about where I think this all may land and the tension that may exist because of the way these cases have been pitched and litigated with what is going on with the National Labor Relations Board charges and that pathway to collective bargaining and meaningful change in the relationship between the athletes and the institutions. And again, the FLSA does very little to change relationship except perhaps getting some of these athletes a modest minimum wage. But we'll talk more about that in the next episode. And I guess I should also note that since the NCAA filed its brief in the Third Circuit in this Johnson case, and that was on May 31st, just a couple of weeks ago, as I mentioned earlier, we've had some additional briefings. So the Southeastern Conference, the SEC, filed a friend of the court brief in the Third Circuit, as did the American Council on Education and all of its affiliated organizations. Some of the same friend of the court activity here in this Johnson case that we saw in the Austin case. So I'm going to talk about those briefs as well. They're very interesting, I think. So I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Take care.